This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 249. I hope you enjoyed the series on the brain, the last four shows. If you didn't get to catch it, it is an absolute cracker. Uh, we talk Alzheimer's with Dr. Dale Bredesen. We talk about stroke recovery and what the four different quadrants of our brain do with uh, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. We talk fasting with uh, Dr. Mindy Peltz and how it relates to the brain. Uh, it was just a really amazing show. And then, of course, with neurologist uh, Dr. Maya Sheetreet on teacher plants and developments in uh, microdosing psychedelics for um, mental health challenges such as PTSD and depression. So, wow, what a month. Uh, where do we go from here, you might be asking. We go in a completely uh, different direction, however, linked because everything in the low-tox life is in one way or another. And we're talking about farming and food over the next few weeks. Uh, one of the chief reasons for that is my book is coming out at the end of September, Lotox Life Food, and the pre-order link is in the show notes if you haven't managed to get around to doing that yet. Uh, and I thank you for your support in advance uh, if you do um, buy the book. Uh, it is chock full of so, so much stuff. Uh, when I was writing you know, it's so hard to understand what it's going to be like when you see it in the end, even though you spend so much time on it, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, but it really is a huge little book. Um, it's all I can say. I'm going to start sharing excerpts and extracts on social media and, um, and doing some recipe demos and things like that. But because the book talks about food and farming systems and waste and uh, ultra-processed food and how we can all overlap in our intention to create a fairer and more equitable food system uh, and network of food systems, rather. Uh, I really wanted to showcase some of the people who are writing about uh, food and farming and uh, bringing more nature to urban areas and everything in between uh, over this next few weeks uh, because I really want to celebrate the work of a lot of people in the field. Uh, oh, that was a nice little pun, wasn't it? Uh, and one such human's work is Matthew Evans, uh, who has tirelessly, through his own journey of farming, championed uh, a more sustainable, a more regenerative uh, and a more transparent um, way of, of um, consumers uh, connecting to their food, of people returning to the land and what that might look like. Uh, and his latest book is simply called Soil. 
and uh, he has now gone underground to focus on the magic of what is beneath our feet and why it's so important. And what's incredible about this book is it's not just a biology lesson. You don't just learn about all the different things that are in soil that are important and why we should care. You learn about some sordid happenings in the past Uh, You learn about cultural significances of soil, tending to soil in different ways. You learn about different climates. Uh, and, And then, of course, the magic of all those little microorganisms underneath our feet and what they mean and how many there are and why we should care. So it really runs the whole gamut of all the reasons we should Uh, have some basic knowledge about soil and the history uh, around why it has become a problem today, how much topsoil we have left, uh, and a a grave concern, frankly, about how much topsoil we have left and what we can all do to then start to be a part of the solution, no matter where you live, city, urban, uh, suburbs, country, out in the middle of nowhere, we can all do something positive uh, in the story of soil rehab, I call it. Uh, and Matthew's just an incredible storyteller. If you haven't seen his documentaries uh, on SBS over the years, well worth um, digging back through the archives to look up. Um, I particularly like the um, sustainable catch doco that he did uh, that helped us. Oh, sorry, What's the Catch? It was called. And he really helped us look under the hood of the fishing industry and and how one might, whether it's even possible, uh, enjoy sustainable seafood. Um, And uh, he is a champion for people really understanding what uh, ethical and uh, soundly grown and raised uh, animals looks like and uh, how that impacts the planet and our health as well. So uh, please do listen to the show, even if you might be vegan or vegetarian. I think you'll enjoy what Matthew has to say. Um, It's not about poo-pooing the way anyone eats, but rather food sovereignty. And if one is going to eat a certain way, we all have the responsibility, no matter how we eat, to do that as best Uh, as is possible for both our health and the planet and any creatures that might be involved, which, in fact, no matter how we eat, there are creatures involved. I remember reading his book on, um, it's called On Eating Meat, a couple of years ago, and uh, I was absolutely shocked to learn how many animals are killed in uh, vegetable farming. (laughs) It's not that I had no idea. I think it's actually that I just never thought about it. And, um, and I think there's something incredibly unifying when we understand and, and make peace with the fact that things die for us to eat no matter what, then we can all actually unify and work really hard to make sure that however we eat, we do it the best way possible for every aspect of that food chain involved. Uh, so I hope you enjoy that uh, conversation that's just about to come up. I want to take a moment to thank uh, Walida, our sponsors this month. They've put on a fabulous 20% off all Walida products. Your code is Walida August, all one word, uppercase. And the website is walida.com.au. So yes, this is for the Aussies. Uh, and that 20% off, unfortunately, of course, excludes gift vouchers, gift packs and promo items. But uh, 20% off is huge. And I know a lot of you guys use Walida products regularly. This is a great time to stock up. Uh, It's a great time to grab a couple of gifts as um, you might be starting to think about um, 
people's birthdays or the end of the year coming up. Uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, giving this brand because of what they stand for. And in fact, it's their 100 year anniversary this year. And the founder is the biodynamics founder as well, uh, Rudolf Steiner, and the, the, by the same name, the education model. Uh, so a man that achieved an incredible amount in a short life. Uh, many uh, who think that life was ended because of the threat of Hitler back in the day who thought his free thinking and progressive ideas were very dangerous to the state of Germany that Hitler had in mind. So there's an incredible history uh, that underpins Walida and uh, that biodynamic um, care and championing of the growing of plants and the tending to one's uh, ecosystem as best as possible to protect it, to enhance it, to uh, honour the complexity all the time is something that you see done throughout all of Walida's partner farms wherever any plant is grown that will end up in a Walida product. And uh, they are one of the highest rated in fact, I think the highest rated cosmetic company in the world in terms of sourcing with respect, cruelty-free uh, and care for the environment um, and uh, having regeneration at their heart. Uh, and they've had a huge focus globally on soil health this year. So I think that's a really beautiful synergy uh, with today's show on soil. So please do make sure you make the most of that 20% off I know I have my little list if you want to know what I use from the range. Um, the chief things that I'm using are um, one of the products from the new hydrating facial care range, the, which is called the 24-hour hydrating facial cream. It's for dry to normal skin, but it's incredibly light in texture. But it's the extract of the prickly pear cactus um, that basically, I mean, I don't want to go too technical, but... It has an extremely high content of water-binding polysaccharides. And you would have heard me talk on the show last week about how you can figure out whether your skin is dehydrated. So dehydration isn't the big, thick, deep lines. It's if you push the skin of your cheek up towards your eye and you see a whole bunch of tiny little feathery lines, that is dehydration. And the best news about that is you could get rid of it. <laughs> you can minimize it drastically. It's actually quite incredible. And you would have heard of um, synthetic ingredients like hyaluronic acid over the years. Well, this extract in prickly pear is basically nature's answer to that. And uh, it supports the skin's ability to store water. And I've noticed that if I put that on in the morning or in the nighttime, let's say, and in the morning I then splash my face with water, I can actually still feel a bit of the cream um, when I splash off my water. That is how long it lasts. And so for someone in their 40s like me who wants to try and squeeze out every bit of rejuvenation I can in my healthy aging process, I'm a big fan of that new range. I also love the Evening Primrose Eye Cream, love giving um, the Calendula Baby products uh, and White Mallow products to sensitive little newborns in the world um, or friends with eczema or psoriasis, dermatitis, hives who find they react to a lot of things. That White Mallow range is amazing. And their little zit spot treatment is incredible. It's like a little magic thing. So anyway, those are a few of the things top of my mind as I stock up this month. I hope you enjoy that offer and I hope that you enjoy this conversation all about soil. I definitely encourage you to go get this book. It's an absolute gem of a book. 
And for our Low Tox Club members, I'm going to be giving one away this week as I um, amazingly have one spare. (laughs) And I thought, I don't need two of these. Uh, So um, thanks to the generosity of Matthew and Murdoch, I will be giving one away in the club. So I'll see our members in there. If you wonder what the club is about, um, you just head to lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and join the club is the very first thing there. 49 bucks a year. It helps you help us put this show on every week, as well as giving you a bunch of member perks, such as 50% off e-courses, um, a monthly ebook uh, on different aspects of leading a low-tox life, and some exclusive Q&A um, demos and interviews from experts in all areas of the low-tox life. For example, we just had a demo from the lovely Kirsty Worth from Cultured Wellness, all about how to make sparkling probiotic kefir drinks. Um, uh, and as I say, as someone who kind of sometimes gets a little bit antsy about new skills, it's idiot proof. Um, so that's just like a little window into some of the things we do for our club members. So if you fancy joining that, come on and join. I'm going to stop rabbiting on. I feel like I've been talking way too long in this intro. Sometimes that happens. Here we go. Let's talk soil with Matthew Evans. Hello, Matthew Evans. How are you? I'm very good, Alex. I'm really, really good. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited about your new book. I think it's going to be such an amazing uh, key to helping more of us not just understand what's beneath our feet, but actually start to care about how that translates in our day-to-day lives and the choices we make. And everyone loves a good story. And I think you are an amazing storyteller in this book. You really tell the story of soil through some beautiful um, personal anecdotes, some history, uh, sociology, biology, war, it's all in there. And uh, it's actually a real page turner. Now I know people listening might think, how could you write a book on soil that's a page turner? But trust me when I say this is definitely that book. Um, and Matthew, when I sent across my framework questions a few days ago, uh, what I didn't include in, in what's going to be this first little question is how terrified of you I once was uh, as a member of the hospitality industry. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you were our foremost uh, restaurant critic in this, uh, in this town, Sydney, uh, for many years and an excellent critic at that. And I ran one of the uh, coolest bars in back in the day, Lotus, at the, in the Maryvale Group. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we would always be a little bit terrified when Matthew was coming in for a booking. Uh, and so, uh, and what I love about them following your journey is how um, how much your life has changed in this last 15 years and the decisions you've made, the ways you've wanted to connect to the land uh, more deeply and to make it the work that you do, uh, both as a farmer and as a storyteller on television and in books. Uh, I want to ask you then, as the first uh, little foray into today's conversation about soil, were there any key moments that were real awakenings or epiphanies that led you to so dramatically change your life? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think it was a slow drip. I think, I mean, you, you, you know, you say I, my life's changed, but so is, so is yours. And I think we do, we do grow up and we do change and we do mature and, in, 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 you know, that whole evolution of, of what you, you are into and what you do is, is normal. But I, I think I always wanted to grow food um, and have a little bit of space around me and sort of live a, a rural life, like a, a hobby farm life, I guess. Um, growing up, I knew 
people who had farms and and um, around Canberra. I grew up in Canberra, and occasionally you get to go there. And I thought it was amazing, just this freedom, the, the you know the, the big, big wide spaces. Um, but uh, it took me a long time to get there, and I had very urban existence. It's hard to be a restaurant critic in a rural shire and in the south, southernmost shire of Australia. <laughs> not and many jobs going then? No. Not a lot of jobs. <laughs> and, you know, and you, you know, if you want to actually be really honest as a restaurant critic, you say occasionally you have to criticise things. And when you live in a small town, you don't want to criticise anyone, you know. <laughs> so, so, um, so, you know, I, uh, the jobs I had led me to be in bigger and bigger cities until I was in um, Sydney, uh, Australia's biggest city. And, uh, uh, but in my head... I always had this yearning to grow stuff. So I had, you know, I lived in a terrace house, but I had a garden, a plot in a community garden nearby. I had a, a tiny space. It was about the size, it was in a, an old church yard and my plot was about the size of a grave. And um, a lot of my plants um, saw their death in that <laughs> grave-sized plot. I was not oh, a very good gardener. Um, <laughs> but that's because you couldn't get in all the time. It was locked up. So you couldn't just go and water it on a hot day, you had to wait until someone had opened it. So you, you couldn't pop in at the end of the day to oh, check shame. on it. Yeah, um, things have or, changed now. Yeah. I think there's a lot more flexibility in the old community gardens, a bit more empowerment, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it was really great what I could do, but, you know, I just found it hard. But I had this yearning to grow stuff. And then when I'd finished being a restaurant critic, I thought, wow, um, you know, I, I want to, I want to, I'd met all these people who were growing food. And I thought, well, if they can do it, maybe I can have a go at doing it. And I was trying to move somewhere where I could have it. Just you know, maybe have three chickens um, and have a have a veggie garden, and um, sort of overshot the mark. Moved to Southern Tasmania, realised that I could afford a small farm and, and the hobby farm that I'd always dreamt of, I guess. And and so suddenly I had ten chickens, not three, and I had um, uh, three sheep, and uh, then a dairy cow, and and you know, two pigs, and then ten pigs, and. Uh, you know, sort of, sort of um, overshot the mark a little bit in terms of trying to <laughs> grow a little bit of food for, for my dinner plate. Yeah, I know. Yeah. When you when you just said before, you know, I just want to have a few chickens and a veggie patch. I'm like, that's how they all start. That's what they all say. <laughs> it just goes, one thing leads to another, and then boom. Oh, I think um, look, I think having um, uh, when you start to do something that you realise has been um, this yearning for 20 years, I guess it was in my case to to get my hands in soil and to grow stuff then you you then you, re, you it's very easy to get carried away and that's why I think a lot of people probably say oh I just want you know three chickens in a veggie garden and then overshoot it but, but then a lot of us um, a lot of them not us yet um then then realize oh that's crazy um let's shrink it a bit and get back to the three chickens in a veggie garden because that's actually manageable and you can you know you can be a normal human being and do that whereas having um you know sort of too many things on the go means you you, you just become immersed in uh, uh, in farming, growing, you know, um, constantly. And, and it means that that extracts you from everyday life. Um, and most of us are used to having a, a, a social life and an everyday life as well as our um, being able to maybe put some eggs uh, on the breakfast table. Mm, yeah, I remember when my mother-in-law moved down to the Highlands. Uh, that was just before I, I met my husband. But so she'd been there for a few years by the time we were together. And uh, at that point, she had about 20 chooks, and now we call it Bird Palace. She has chooks, pheasants, peacocks, uh, quail, uh, geese, you name it. She's got the kind of bird that it is. She trades birds. She goes to all the meetups. And, and what I've found with her amazing story is that it 
has actually become the social life as well. You know, your life just changes and you meet new communities and connect with uh, all sorts of people that are also passionate about those things. So it's a really amazing way to satisfy that deep uh, personal happiness metric, isn't it, of uh, feeling a sense of purpose and a connection into uh, something important. Yeah, and I think we're, we're hardwired for that. I think mm. one of the things that I found last year was um, during COVID, because we run a we run a farm and we run a restaurant on our little farm, and so we we grow food to serve in the restaurant, and it's a tourism based business. So tourism and hospitality both sort of um, went into a nosedive, and we had um, we had purpose every morning. We had purpose in that we had lots to harvest and lots to do and lots of things to take care of, but we lost meaning, and I mm. think. Um, I think that 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 beautiful thing of being able to grow something for your own plate, whether it's some parsley to go on some uh, pasta or, or some herbs to go in your stew or whatever, or more, or more complex things, um, it gives you both purpose and meaning. Um, and I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think, we, I think it's, we're hardwired for it, really. I mean, that's how humans have have we've evolved to 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 get food to put. Um, in front of us ourselves and our families and uh, I think a lot of people find that that gives them such joy and such um, uh, such meaning. Mm, sure does. Uh, did you ever sort of think as you were establishing your farm and then moving on to having a restaurant um, fed from the farm uh, about different considerations, the different ways people are eating, the different narratives around say climate or uh, you know meat eating versus not were those factors for you in your establishment of a farm and restaurant? I think what we were interested in was um, capturing a moment in time on a plate and uh, capturing um, you know, that paddock to plate concept. We sort of we, we wanted to take that to its logical conclusion. So how much can we produce from this patch of land, and what can we produce? And we're not trying to be self-sufficient. People have this sort of idea of self-sufficiency. Now, I like mangoes and I like pinot noir, right? don't grow them. I like saffron. Don't grow it. My neighbour grows it. You know, one of my other neighbours grows Pinot Noir. Um, so we don't try to do everything, but we do what we can. And so our framework is what works here, what tastes good from here, what's the best use of our labour and the best use of our land in the long term. So how to use this land to grow food, um, but not bugger it up as we grow food, because you can, when you grow food, you can, you can uh, make land better or you can make it worse or you can keep it the same. Um, and our hope is that we don't make it worse. We maybe keep it the same and hopefully make it better by growing mm, food. Yeah. Um, and so to that end, uh, what made you start to realise what was making the land better and what wasn't? Was it conversations with fellow farmers in the area? Did you study a bit, a bit of combination of both? Your combination of both. Yeah, we were really lucky. Um, there was uh, when, when we, I used to live on a very small farm, so we outgrew our little farm with our you know, we had too many sheep and too many cows and too many pigs, so we, we bought a bigger farm. But when we were still at the old place, we met a couple of people uh, who who are who were in the regenerative agriculture space, I guess you'd call it. So they they were um, trying to help farmers. They were they were farmers. They were all farmers trying to help other farmers look after the land that was in their care. And so we couldn't necessarily do the things that we learned at that point, but, but it put ideas in our head. And then we would chat to other locals about how they manage things and um, farmers from further afield and other people would come and visit us or we'd go and visit them. And so it's just, I guess, that swap of information. But then 
also through books and reading and, and um, people like Joel Salatin from the US um, describes himself as a lunatic farmer. And if, 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 you, if your neighbours think you're doing a good job, you're doing the wrong thing is, is his view. Um, <laughs> because, because a lot of farming has, um, modern farming has, has sort of gone down a path that is not always good for the land. And so his attitude is if you're not questioning and not being questioned by your neighbours, then you're probably not doing a good job. And, and that's, that's so we're not, we, we're not, born into farming my partner Sadie and I we're not born into farming family so for us we're very free to make choices and to make changes without having sort of some you know ha having to rely on a previous generation's approval um or uh, uh or disapproval for what yeah that's a big thing for a lot of farmers uh, you know my dad won't let me change things or you know he won't talk to me if I even mention the word organic or you know and, and it can be a really big deal in families yeah yeah and it, and it is it, it farmers we, we, we discover when we move to the land they will drive past and they'll look over your fence and judge what you do over a period of a year or two years and make a decision a value decision about what you're doing before they really open up to you so they will open up earlier if you go and sort of ask them but but generally there's a lot of looking over the fence and making a, an assumption or, or, or a decision about what how you, how you are a manager and some of those decisions some of what they look at is how neat your farm is so so a lot of farmers around here they like everything really neat so yeah they'll spray the fence line with with roundup and they'll 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 mow the paddocks to keep them all very evenly lensed, and um, and sometimes the organic farms can look really messy because it's it's, it's more biodiverse. It's kind of things of different ages, uh, um, you know, no, no spray, you know. So so it it can appear to an old school farmer as though you don't know what you're doing, um, but at the same time, while farmers can be so, sort of um, so, uh, yeah, they're steeped in history and, and have learnt a lot from from their fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers. Um, they are also willing to look at ideas that will benefit their land. So if they see you do something and they think, "Oh, a bit of an idiot," but then a year later, "Oh, hang on, his 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 land looks better than mine," they'll be asking questions. Why does that look better? Mm. Yeah, interesting. And it's it's quite a um, a metaphor, really. The 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 more perfect and neat uh, something looks, the perhaps the more sterile and unproductive in the long term it becomes. Whereas the messy kind of biodiverse, all sorts of things going on, uh, you know. And then you see that in the produce itself. It's a little bit messy, funny shapes, uh, more nutritious, uh, more enzymes. Really interesting. Nature hates consistency. Nature really hates consistency. And, and so the most, you know, some of the most fertile places are, are rainforests. They're not neat. They're chaotic. Um, and that, I think, is um, one of the more modern ways of looking at agriculture is, is it, it, it is slightly chaotic and, it's, um, and it, and it is, um, has multiple interactions at all different levels. And um, so growing food is... Uh, you know, as, as one of our gardeners described, it's not it's not rocket science. It's way more complex than that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Having studied, um, you know, all, all you need to do is watch a, um, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Walter, the amazing soil scientist, Walter, Walter Yenner. Um, and I remember when I first started researching my book, watching one of his lectures and it was two and a half hours long. And, uh, and the, the blackboard that he was lecturing from just looked like some 
autistic savant syndrome, uh, you know, it, it was incredible. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, soil is just and farming is, it really is, it's, it's not rocket science, it's more complex. Totally agree. Um, it's not just a whole bunch of formulas, it's moving parts always. Yeah, and I think, and I think that's what is, is happening now in terms of uh, soil science is that we did it for a while, sort of simplify it and try to you know, work out ways to manage things in, a, in that, hu you know, that human um, propensity we have to, to say, well, hang on, this is this problem, we fix it this way, and there's this happening, we'll fix it that way. So the chemistry maybe or, or the minerals. And, um, but now I guess there's this whole new, um, with, with, especially with DNA um, uh, uh, um, analysis, they can, they can actually tell the diversity of stuff. And, and what, we, what we know is what we don't know. And then we, what we don't know is 98% of what lives in soil. So, so we, we have to manage things being humble enough to know that we don't know quite what we're managing, but um, that it, it will self-organise and self-manage if we put the conditions in place. And we now know the conditions, we just have to be confident enough to be able to do it and, um, and learn, learn from past mistakes. And observation, well. always. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, you, obviously as a farmer, you started to uh, look at your soil more closely. When did you decide to go underground to the level of which you would desire producing a book on the subject? Because, you know, choosing to write a book about something is like choosing to have a child. you got to be sure. <laughs> <laughs> Booked out before, and they tell me it's like childbirth in that you forget the pain after a couple of years and um, and decide to yep. do it again. Um, uh, it, it, it was a really big process, actually. So I, I guess what happened to me was I we were growing food, and then we were, we'd had a garden, and we bought a new farm, and we we had someone come in, and she said, "Well, let's put your soil under a microscope." And I was like, "Yeah, I've heard of living soil. I've heard there's things that live in soil, but I had no clue." That, that there was so much in soil. I had no clue that a single teaspoon of soil can have more living things in it than there are humans on the planet. There can be up to 10 billion living organisms, bacteria, protists, nematodes, um, archaea, um, algae, in, in a teaspoon of soil, 10 billion things in a teaspoon of soil. Like that's utterly, utterly mind-blowing. And you don't know that. When we walk on soil, we don't see it. Like we don't we can't appreciate it like we can a rainforest or a waterfall or, a, or diving on the Great Barrier Reef. You see, you dive on the Great Barrier Reef and you can see it's either living or it's dying, but you, you, you're surrounded by diversity and you get this very visceral sense of it. Soil, you just look at it, I don't know, it, it looks sort of grey, browny, blacky, you know, some stuff grows or it doesn't grow. But when we looked under our soil under a microscope and hardly saw anything living and then took some of um, someone else's soil and looked at that and the you know, the, the thousands of little things you can see under a microscope. I suddenly went, oh, my God, I'm the custodian of something that I have not valued and not thought, thought of, um, that, that all of those billions of lives under the soil, um, they're not just there for them, they're there for us. They're, they're, they, they are vital in topsoil and topsoil is vital to us. So the book was born out of, I guess, these learning all this stuff like 98 to 99 percent of all the calories that humans eat come from the fact we have topsoil that was that's just, just sort of amazing you go oh hang on we can get things from the ocean or the rivers or whatever no well yes we can but that's one to two percent of our energy intake comes from from those sources so this 
that this tiny thin veneer of topsoil does all the world's growing and, and we are utterly reliant on it and yet we, um, we really um, don't ever give it the credit it deserves or think about it in the way it needs to be thought about as a, as a community. Mm, absolutely. And in your book you share that we're losing soil at a rate 30 to 40 times faster then we're replacing it. <laughs> and I, I sometimes think it's kind of like that 60 harvests left fact. Um, and uh, I think of urban people going about their busy, double mortgaged lives, uh, very kind of focused on just getting the kids fed, getting a holiday organised, trying to get the shopping done, trying to get your kid to eat what you cook, you know, the basic, basic stuff. Uh, that fills the average day of an urban-based person. Uh, how do we get those people um, to connect to these crazy facts and, uh, and feel like they can do something about that and, and, and do better from their own little corner of the world? Because I think that's one of, it's obviously one of your goals with this book. I could feel it as you were writing. You just want people to care um what are what are a couple <laughs> yeah. of the things you suggest yeah so it's, it's two pronged that so how do we how do we get people to notice or whatever i think we have to use storytelling and and pick that up very early so we have to tell the stories of soil that um because we can't we can't see it with our own eyes we kind of have to rely on the people who research this stuff and we have to rely on um uh the, you know, the, the, the scientific analysis but also maybe some faith that you know that there are billions of things that are working to nourish us in in, in healthy topsoil. So so being up, we need we need people to be able to tell the stories of soil, um, because then then we might care. So when you discover that half of the antibiotics used in human medicine come had their origins in soil, you know you kind of go, oh Christ, you know there, there's something that matters um, uh, to to human health, or um, that there are antidepressants in soil. So there are, there are microbes in soil that, um, that make us happy when we inhale them. And, and, and now we know that when you, we walk into a garden or a forest, you can suddenly feel this uplifting, you know, you, you, your shoulders um, drop and you can feel better about the world, better about yourself because, because soil has, has an, uh, you know, happy hormone effect on the, on the body. Um, being able to know this, that, that soil microbes can be lifted into the stratosphere and, and actually form the basis of rain, um, you know, that, that most, most rain is formed around um, uh, a, a biological molecule and about half the time that is a soil, um, a soil microbe. So when you learn these things and you think, oh, hang on, soil isn't just, you know, it's not just something to rinse off the potatoes. <laughs> you know, it actually, not only it does all the world's growing, but, it, you know, it provides our medicine, it makes us happy, it forms rain, then maybe we'll care more, more about it. Now, and, and the second part of your question was how do you get people in the cities to care? Well, I guess, I guess it's only through realising that this, this, we are utterly dependent on it. And if you could tell the stories of it, then, and then people, um, need to feel empowered so the other beautiful thing is that every patch of soil is important so whether that's a pot plant um, that sits in your lounge room or whether it's uh, some herbs in a in a terracotta pot outside your back door or whether you've got a veggie garden or whether you just have a garden that's just for visceral pleasure like a flower garden i mean that's just as important as, as growing uh, growing vegetables but we, we sort of underestimate what people in urban areas can do. So if you add up all the urban areas in the world, like all the bits that we've built towns and cities on, 
uh, and roads and stuff. And you put it all together, it's about the size of Western Europe, right? It's massive. It's this huge bit of land that's been taken out of um, food production generally. Um, and, and, uh, and most of it was good agricultural land. It was good land. But the nice thing is we can use that for urban gardens. We can use that to grow stuff. And even today, a billion people around the tropics um, grow food in domestic gardens enough to feed themselves. A billion people sustain themselves on domestic gardens. Now, the tropics is a little bit easier than where I live in southern Tasmania. We, we have a fairly um, slow growing season in, in the middle of winter. Um, but there is a, a, the potential for urban gardens. During the Second World War, America produced nearly half of its fruit and vegetables came from urban gardens, people's backyards. So, you know, or, or, or vacant lots. You know, you know, it, 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 and now we know how to do it on rooftops. We know how to do it in, you know, on the front verge of, you know, where councils let you. I can't believe that councils some places don't, but you're know, growing vegetables on the, on the, you know, in, in the front of your house, not just in the back of, of your house. Every patch of land, whether it's the size of a pot plant, whether it's, you know, a, a million acre cattle station is important when it comes to soil. Um, and I guess the other thing is there are great farmers doing really good things in this space, uh, regenerative farmers who, um, uh, and there, there are uh, way, like I know there's a, a supermarket chain in Australia that's trying to brand stuff, you know, and say this is this is from a regenerative farm. So this place takes better care of soil. So you can you can change the world a bit when you make your purchasing decisions as well. Mm. Um, so it's, it's multifaceted, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, now you mentioned million acre cattle stations, and there's some pretty strong narratives that. Uh, suggest that that would be a, an appalling way to go for um, the land and the climate. Uh, what would you say to that? Oh, cattle stations generally or just uh, <laughs> million acre ones? <laughs> <laughs> well, is there a way? I mean, you know, I've researched this enough and I'd like to, to hear your views and to share that with people. Um, is there, it, it, for me, it's about the how, not the what, um, because there's always a good way and a not so great way we can do things. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and that's a really interesting one. My last book was on about the ethics of eating mm. meat and sort of covered all of that um, in depth in there and I guess the ethics of it. Um, but one of the things that I realised when I was writing this book was that soil is agnostic. So soil doesn't believe you should be plant-based and soil doesn't believe you should, um, you know, eat a lot of meat or whatever. Soil, what soil needs is, is sort of separate from, from those debates. So... Um, uh, there is, there is definitely a place for animals in ecosystems. In fact, the worst thing, one of the, one of the, the biggest changes that we don't know yet um, the consequences of, because it takes quite a while for it to come into effect, is, is removing animals from landscapes. But what we do know is that where, wherever we've ruined land or depleted land, um, cropping land, so where they grow grains and vegetables, the best thing you can do for that land to restore it to some kind of health is to put it under grass to let it go back to pasture and um uh, and and people knew that 150 years ago and, and in lots of cultures independently discovered this that you need to you can rotate crops you know like instead of just growing wheat every year you would grow wheat then you know maybe peas then sorghum then millet or whatever and grow different crops over different years and that would replenish soil but then at some point you needed to rest the soil and now we know that that's to feed the underground ecosystems, to feed soil itself. Um, and so you would rest it, let it go back to pasture grass and put animals over it. Um, 
uh, and that was a, that's a that's still the most recommend the the recommended way to improve the you know degraded um, agricultural land is to do that. Um, and so you can just put it back to grass and mow it, or you can put it back to grass and put a grazing animal over it. The other thing is that you know something like you know uh, yeah, we use about half of Australia's land for agriculture. About four percent is useful for growing vegetables, grains, crops. The rest is grazing land. So if you don't use it as grazing land, you can't grow food there. So people have a, a, this idea that oh we're you know we're using you know ninety percent of our available. Um, agricultural land for animals, we should be growing chickpeas. Well, no, you can't grow chickpeas there. So sometimes it's good to have an animal. Now, if you don't have a grazing animal on an ecosystem, you need to have some animal because we have removed animals from our ecosystems. Now, whether that be the insects that used to splatter my windscreen when I was a kid that no longer seem to exist when you drive through Western New South Wales, um, they all had a, an important role in the ecosystem. But um, having grazing animals through, through landscapes, having megafauna, like something like 92, you know, megafauna used to roam all the landscapes of, of, the, of the earth and they used to move nutrients around. And we, when we got rid of the megafauna, we lost this nutrient cycling. And so when we remove animals from an ecosystem, we, we essentially start to starve soil. And the, and the repercussions of starving soil can take a long time to see. So if you had an area that used to be forest, that used to have animals, that used to have a complex ecosystem and it has soil, and then you turn that into, I don't know, let's say you're growing broccoli or, or something and potatoes. Um, if you never put animals back in there or products from animals, um, then soil starts to lose its integrity and its, by, um, its nutrients. By products from animals, because, you mean uh, dung, like poo? Yeah, poo or blood and bone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially, the, 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 the things that would have, um, animals would have lived and died there, so they would have pooed there. Decomposed um, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they would have died there. And so when you remove animals from an ecosystem, you end up with, with problems. And so soil is used to having animals in it and on it and dying on it and pooing on it. And so when you remove that, not eating meat is a... Uh, it's an easy out, but it's not, um, it's not necessarily, you know, this idea that people who grow grains and pulses are saviors of, of our soils is misplaced. Um, they're not saints by you know, any measure. They're, they are, if in some ways, it's harder to look after soil growing grains and vegetables than it is grazing livestock. That doesn't mean livestock can't ruin soil. They definitely can, they do it really quickly. But um, I think well-managed ecosystems have animals in them. And if we want to feed people properly nutrient-dense food and look after soil, then we need to consider what animals uh, we use in our system because we need to have animals in the system, either wild or domesticated. And if we can grow more food using animals, um, producing high-quality protein and improved soil, then we'd be mad not to. Mm. And it sounds like, for, and yeah, from what I read in your book and certainly some of the other studying I've done over the past couple of years, it sounds like um, not only would it be mad not to, but it would be detrimental to the long-term health of our planet. Yeah, well, the evidence seems to suggest that, mm. yes. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah because, because, um, because, because we've removed animals from, from ecosystems. So, yeah, if you, if you want to grow food, you have to put animal. You have to have animals there in some capacity, either their products or them um, themselves. And so, if you grow wheat and then you 
you, you, you spray the wheat with everything to kill every insect that ever, is going to ever come across, you know, and maybe shoot the birds, um, then you never get any animals on that land landscape. And, and the land needs animals. It always had animals and it all, will always need animals to, to, to have healthy soil. So plants, animals and soil um, uh, have evolved around each other and they need, they need each other. And so it shouldn't be a mystery to us that they still need each other, even if we put a fence up and decide to grow a single crop or, you know, four different crops or, or whatever. They still need each other. That's, that shouldn't be news, but um, it does seem to be news to some people. Mm. And something I found interesting in your book on eating meat, uh, literally called that on eating meat, just for anyone who hasn't read it, um, it's a fascinating book because it, it's you very openly just asking questions of experts and farmers and answering them in the book. So it's not opinion-based, it's not agenda-based, it's simply what you discovered in exploring this topic. And I find that really refreshing in an age where there is so much agenda-based writing uh, from all sides of these uh, arguments. Um, and I, uh, I remember reading about the, was it the snow pea farmer? And something like, uh, you know, he admits he has to kill up to 150 deer a year to literally protect his crop uh, so that he can farm. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't be able to provide the snow peas for the market. And, you know, I feel like a half-truth is being told when we write and um, answer questions with agenda on either side because it stops us from learning whole truths and big pictures and there couldn't be a bigger picture uh, subject than agriculture to me and the symbiotic relationship between all the things that help it really thrive. Uh, and uh, I felt like that book really helped to um, just be very matter of fact about the fact that it's actually almost impossible to eat anything without killing something. Yeah, and I'm glad that you picked up on that because, you know, because I eat meat and we, we have um, a farm that's called Fat Pig Farm, people presumed I was writing to sort of justify eating meat. And I think the difference between what I'm writing as opposed to um, uh, some of the stuff I've read is that I, I actually don't want to convince anyone to eat meat or not eat meat. No, you know, I actually either. have no interest. I think you're all grown up. Yeah. You can make your own decisions. 100%. But what I don't like is people, yeah, people making decisions based on, on bad information. So, I mean, the number of, rodents that would have died this year to grow grain like it, it would blow I, I haven't seen the numbers yet but you know it's it's generally in the billions to kill on average grain crops so the idea that killing an animal to grow for beef is inherently cruel but killing a a, a rodent to, to grow wheat is not cruel I, I just i question that and if you choose not to eat meat that's great but just don't don't sort of do it on the basis of misinformation or um, information you got from the internet that doesn't have uh, any any basis on how food is actually grown. Well, after I published that book, I met all sorts of people. Oh, yeah, we shoot we shoot cockatoos to protect your pistachios. That if you eat pistachios, an animal's died to, to grow it. You know, I was I was actually horrified at the number of stories that farmers would come up to me and say, oh yeah, we shoot this and we do that to kill, you know, to kill this. But that's because if you grow delicious, nutritious food, something else wants to eat it. And so farmers are in the very difficult position of trying to protect a crop, grow it at a price that you are willing to pay um, so they can't net the entire globe to, to keep out, you know, the things that shouldn't, shouldn't be there. And, um, and, and they have to kill things on your behalf to be able to get food on the table at the price you demand. And as long as you understand that, that's great. And if you choose to eat pistachios, knowing that, that a bunch of cockatoos have died, then 
great, you know, fine. But but to to pretend it doesn't happen, I think, um, kind of kind of insulting to farmers and the people who try to put food on your table, um, uh, you know, because because they're doing it on your behalf. They don't they don't love doing it. None of them, no one loves doing it. Mm. It's yeah, and I think part of the awakening almost needs to be. Uh, having an, a greater acceptance of death as a part of our life cycle in all things. Um, and for one thing to eat, the other thing has to die, whether it's indirectly or directly, it changes, uh, but it's true. And then for me, when we accept that, then I feel like we can get on with the peaceful task of all discovering what foods and diets suit us best personally and uh, celebrate that if you like, be public about it if you like, but we can lose the agenda because we've actually all accepted the big picture of what eating actually means. Yeah, and I think that you, you know that there, we, we are um, separated from death. And, and 150 years ago, we knew what death looked like. We'd stared it in the face. Um, we saw it in our relatives and we saw it in the animals around us as we grew food and, and competed with them to some extent to, to put food on the table. And um, we have a very, so I hate to say it's, it's, not a, it's not a very positive way to describe it, but an immature um, way of dealing with death. So, so being mortified by it and uh, almost in denial of it when actually, obviously, it's part of life. Mm. Well, yeah, <laughs> and you only need to look at Indigenous cultures and how they... Uh, have all, you know, not even just Indigenous, I have Jewish friends who have some incredible rituals around letting go and 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 uh, moving through grief as loved ones pass on. Uh, and I feel like a lot of Anglo-Saxon uh, descendant people have really lost touch with that and uh, lost touch with a way of actually accepting and moving through things coming and going in our lives and dying, um, dying and living and celebrating all of it, really. I think we get stuck in an Alison Lester book, you know, a beautiful yeah. story, ch ch children's story time book where if anything you know, dies, it goes to a happy place in the sky and without realising that it actually just all ends up back in soil, you know, that we are all temporarily not soil. And, 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 and when we realise that, that we're just a bunch of nutrients cycling between, you know, the, the air, the, the soil, the plants, the animals, um, then I think then we can accept our place in the world a bit better and, and, and realise that we are just part of a, a bigger whole and, um, and, and that death, while it might mortify us and it's never pretty, um, certainly with animals we relate to, warm-blooded animals, um, then, uh, then, then it's... Um, it's not it's not necessarily nice and no one relishes it but the recognition that it exists and it, it exists everywhere all around us all the time um, uh, then I think then we're, we're more in tune with with you know the, the the ecosystems that gift us life yeah absolutely um, speaking of the gift of life I loved your story about Graham the pooologist in the book. <laughs> um, can you share a little bit about what <laughs> happened when he came to visit you guys and why, why you invited him uh, over? Yeah. So Graham, Graham's this beautiful um, uh, gentleman who lived, Graham Stevenson lives in um, Northern Tasmania and he's, he's known as the poologist. He goes around schools um, and, and uh, you know, I think he's got a little hat that looks like a poo or something. Anyway, well, he came to our farm because we have we have a blowfly problem as everyone does probably in Australia, but it got particularly bad in, in early summer, 
and we thought, well, we've got cows and the cows have a big cow pat and um, we wanted to know if we could get dung beetles to come and sort of help with the, with the cow pats because the flies can lay eggs in there and that can become blowfly, uh, the next generation of blowflies. But if you have dung beetles, they can bury the poo underground and they take that poo and not like the ones you see on telly, the roll big balls, the ones that live in Australia mostly just take the poo and they just take it underground and they, they essentially move this really fertile cow pat into the soil and feed the soil. And Graham came and he was he was delirious. He, he, he just, we put down a fresh poo um, on, a, on a piece of plastic and then um, all these um, uh, uh, dung beetles flew in from around the place. And, and so within hours, we found all these, um, these dung beetles. So we knew that we had a, a healthy population. They just hadn't sort of come out of hibernation enough at the start of summer um, to get rid of all the cow pats. But then he started digging around and he found a worm and he started leaping around. He had this funny little um, uh, felt hat on and a blue raincoat and, and he kept saying, shit, oh, there's a beautiful shit over here and there's shit over here. And we're trying to film um, for, for a family, you know, time television show. And, and he was just obsessed with, with you know, what, what lives in the ground and what feeds soil. But he found this worm and it's a, a black-headed earthworm and it's a, a deep digger. And he was so excited because they normally only find them in warmer places in northern Tasmania. It's hard for them to live in this climate. Um, in southern Tasmania, it gets a bit cold. But they dig up to a metre down. So these, these worms will take poo and they'll take leaf litter and they'll take other um, uh, you know, forms of things that are rotting on the soil and they'll carry the nutrients down through the soil. And as they go, um, worm poo is like this magic substance that can, can um, dissolve rock and it's like a plant superfood. It's like a, a, horm a growth hormone for plants. And, um, you know, they, they, store, they, they can store carbon. And, and as they're going down up to a metre down, they're, they're creating these, these oxygen holes. So air, air the, the entire atmosphere in, in the top 20 centimetres of soil is exchanged every hour. So we think of soil and dirt or the ground as solid, but it's not. It's, it's this living, breathing thing. But these worms go down a metre so that all the air and all the nutrients can go down a metre down, so not just in the top sort of 10, 20 centimetres. And he was so excited. It was great to see someone... I, I think I describe him in the book as being, he looked like Gollum, you know, in yeah, Gollum, yeah. leaps around totally. you know, sort of joyously. You know, uh, and, and, and he gave me this, um, I, I just felt really um, spelled by seeing someone getting excited about poo, worms and dung beetles. Awesome. So good. And uh, I, I feel like it really helped to illustrate the, the magic when someone really understands soil and then they see these key signs that there's some really exciting species uh, in your particular patch. And then you see that it's like, it's something to be then proud of and protect and look after, you know, it becomes so much more valuable. Yeah, I, I had no clue we had this one. I didn't even know about the worm. I could, you know, because it's sort of generally up the north. And but he found one in, in the space of a couple of hours on the farm. Mm. And like you say, we suddenly felt like proud parents. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, we've got if we've got one, we must have more. We've got how do we look after them? How do we encourage them? How do we make sure that they're not just here temporarily, that that, that our whole farm becomes a place where the deep digging earthworm um, you know, can find a home and and uh, you know, help them flourish, which will help our soil flourish, which will help you know, feed the soil so that generations to come will be able to harvest food off this land. Mm. So I mean that's so key, and I reckon you would have uh, you would have proudly shared that fact with a few farmers over a few cups of tea that week. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah it's like, oh, so have you got any deep diggers on your mate your place? Oh, well, we are. Yeah. You should come around, check it out. Too funny. 
Um, and and so when people like Graham visit, and you've had a few visitors on the farm, you share a few stories in the book. Um, what have been some of the biggest takeaways or the biggest changes you guys have made uh, as you've learnt from these people who've come to literally inspect your soil? Uh, because it was just so different everywhere, right? And it really is about getting to know what you've got under your feet there. Yeah, yeah. So the biggest changes we have is that in our um, uh, our grazing areas, so we have a market garden, it's about an, uh, an acre and a half fenced in, but the rest of the farm tends to have livestock on it at various times. Oh, there's, a big, there's big wildlife areas as well. But um, So where, the, where we, we put our grazing animals was to manage the grazing. And that actually, the original thing that we did to manage the grazing, well, the, the best thing we did was to fence out wallabies. And that sounds kind of stupid because wallabies are a grazing animal. We have a lot, lot of wallabies. They, when they, in the old timers used to come here, um, uh, to protect the grazing land, in two nights they would shoot 350 wallabies. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, that's, yeah, that's how many wallabies we have around here. Um, so what we did was, was fence the wallabies out. And what that meant was that we then control the grazing because um, whether, I have, whether it's cows, and I know this is one of the things that you know, people who don't eat may not understand, um, but if, if I don't graze the, the grass with my cows, then something else will eat it. So the wallabies come, but they overgraze the grass just like a cow can. So be sure super lawns. They're, they're really, really super fine, um, sh uh, um, short grass. Um, and so the wallabies would eat it down too short so the grass wouldn't ever put any carbon into the soil and, and um, it started to, to deplete the soil. Um, and then we, we move our animals around. So we, we mimic the ancient herds of herbivores. So in the old days, pre-humans um, putting fences and, and roads everywhere, big masses of herbivores would range and they would bunch together to avoid predators and then they would move on. And you see, even see this with, with kangaroos, you know, they'll stick together in a mob and they'll move on, they'll move on. And um, typically uh, a lot of the grasses don't like being eaten every day. They like being eaten um, uh, uh, they're, they're designed to be eaten, so it's, it's good for a grass to be eaten. It actually encourages their growth and they store more carbon underground and do better by being eaten, but they don't want to be eaten every day. They want to be eaten and then rested for a long time. So what we do is we move our animals on. So, so we might have a patch of grass that's eaten one day with you know, our little herd of cattle um, or goats, and then that grass will then be rested for four months. And in that time, it grows longer, it gets more vigorous, it puts down deeper roots, um, it's punching carbon into the ground, it's sucking carbon dioxide out of the air and turning it into carbohydrate, that miracle of photosynthesis. Um, so the magic of photosynthesis, so a, 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 your grass or any, any green plant um, actually takes carbon dioxide out of the air um, and turns it into carbon carbohydrates. So, so the same carbon that's in the air that's causing global warming, it, it, it can be turned into carbohydrate, and that's what a plant does. It's this, the miracle of photosynthesis. When I, when I was at school, we were taught, oh, yeah, you know, plants breathe out oxygen so we can breathe in oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide so a plant can breathe in carbon dioxide. Yeah, that's one thing happens. But the most important thing is that a plant creates sugar out of thin air using sunlight as the energy source. And all, and all of that sugar, all of that carbohydrate is used for the plant itself, for the subterranean ecosystem. So there's way more things way more um, living matter under the soil than there is above the soil. Um, and uh, they can't create their own sugar out of thin air. So they need the plants to do it. And we need the plant to do that for us as well. So 
Um, so when a cow goes across and you know it eats grass, um, it actually triggers more of that more of that growth. But we need the plant then to recover in between grazings. So that's that's one of the best things we've done with our farmers to is to manage the grazing better. Um, and the other thing is to never dig the garden. Um, and that 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 seems odd because I think a lot of us grew up with this idea that you got to dig in your compost and dig in the foot, you know the last year's um, crop or whatever um, but digging soil damages the home of the trillions and trillions of things that live in soil and it takes them so long to regroup um, so the best thing in fact digging soil is one of the worst things humans have done for the for, for the climate <laughs> it's released masses of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere so like a, a between a quarter and a third of the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is all because of the plow because we turn soil so we now know globally that we shouldn't be turning soil, but we learned in our garden not to turn soil to not, not to protect the climate, but to protect the ecosystem in the soil that then nourishes the plants. But isn't that interesting though, that, you, I mean, it comes back to something I say all the time. If we're doing something that is going to be of benefit to us, true benefit to us tends to also mirror itself in the bigger picture being a benefit to the whole world. Um, yes, if we think yeah. about it and you, your illustration there is, is exactly that. It's like, I've tended to my little patch and lo and behold, that is actually one tiny little patch in the patchwork quilt of the planet that, uh, helps to make the whole thing better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that actually goes back to one of your earlier questions is what people can do in, in their, in the city or where, where they live is never turn, turn soil and to have something growing in it. Um, and it is something that I think a lot of farmers forget um, that that the the origin of all digestible energy, so all of the sugars that you and I can eat, that, that the things that get turned into protein and carbohydrate, all of the origin of that energy is is a green living plant in in soil. So if ever we have soil, it's great to have something living in it, um, uh, like a plant. Um, but also to never disturb the soil underneath because that's the home of the trillions of things that give the plant its best life. Yeah, and and I love what you said before about the plant being agnostic as well. Uh, you know, it doesn't care what you eat up there. It just cares to live its best life to then provide for us, really. Yeah, and there's lots, and, and, and it will differ everywhere in the world as to, as to the best thing you can do for soil in, in sort of some ways, but the single most important thing for soil is that it needs to be fed and the only way it can be fed is to have something green living in it so to have a living plant in it as soon as you don't have living plants then you're starving soil and um you know sadly i think uh, uh, for us uh, globally we still um we still kill most of the plants that live on most of our agricultural soil most years um you know we actually we spray them with glyphosate or you know a roundup or we or we um another herbicide or we or we plow them or both um and that cuts off soil's food source um at the very first step when it's being converted from carbon dioxide into carbohydrate when, when photosynthesis occurs. Mm. And uh, you talk really well in the book about some of the key moments in the last 100 years or so that have, uh, that have really started to um, change the trajectory of how we farm, ramp up this loss of carbon uh, and killing of uh, our soil. Uh, do you want to share just a couple of those key uh moments discoveries scientists 
that uh, gave cause to rapid change in the way we we farmed that has led us to have to now really worry about soil and and um, and and hurry things up to make it better. Yeah, yeah sure. So, so one of the most important um, discoveries was was a guy named Fritz Haber, and what he did is um, so the air around us, um, the air that we breathe, is is nearly eighty percent nitrogen so it's it's there's a lot of nitrogen in the air um, and nitrogen if you can get it into soil is like a um it, it's like a sugar hit for plants it gets them to grow bigger quicker um, and we've known that for a long time there was some sort of concentrated sources of nitrogen um, often in the form of nitrate or saltpeter people might recognize it um, where you could mine these these um these really rich deposits of of, of nitrogen and, and spread it on uh, crops and they would grow better but we knew there was this nitrogen in the air and Fritz Haber in the early 1900s 1905 or something 1906 I think uh, he he worked out how to how to extract nitrogen from the air this sort of essentially unlimited source and turn it into a form that you could then spread on plants um, to get them to grow um, it, interestingly enough it's also um, a, a major uh, form of gunpowder you know, it's a major ingredient in gunpowder and, and explosives so the same nitrate that you can use for fertilizer is um, is also uh, good for making bombs. Anyway, Fritz Haber Fritz Haber um, came up with that, and then a uh, German guy, and uh, and they used that in the um, the war effort, um, uh, both for bombs and for fertilizer in the First World War. Um, and then uh, and then I guess that so what that allowed was uh, you didn't need to rotate crops anymore. You didn't need to feed soil. If you just add this nitrogen, you can get a big um, burst of growth in your plants. It doesn't mean they're very nutrient dense. In fact, the opposite, um, it's not necessarily, it doesn't feed soil. In fact, it puts the subterranean ecosystem to sleep, but it does get a sort of a big growth spurt in plants. And because farmers are paid for um, volume and weight, not on nutrient density, um, uh, that sort of, we it's, it's generally been used. Uh, one, in, one in two, calories you eat comes from the fact that this guy invented um, uh, nitrogen in a, in a form that, you know, you could take it out of the air and put it into a form you could put on your plants. Um, uh, the second thing that happened was um, a guy named Norman Borlaug. He, he, he was, I guess, um, he, he was responsible for most of the Green Revolution. And the Green Revolution is when we, we took different plants that could grow in this high nitrogen environment um, and would grow more efficiently. So he took Wheat, wheat's a really good example. So in the Middle Ages, um, wheat, wheat's been around for thousands of years, but wheat used to only have like five or six seeds per um, per head of, of you know, per plant. Mm -hmm. So not not, not a not very efficient wheat. way to make bread then. <laughs> not not very efficient, but they did it in the Middle Ages, yeah. and and so they kept it. You know, they always thought it was good enough to keep, and would and you know they 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 fed themselves. So it must have been worth doing in some respect. Um, we managed to breed them to have you know up to forty. Um, seeds in, in the head. Um, uh, the problem with that, and when you add um, artificial fertilizer, it gets too tall. So Norman Borlaug was involved in trying to get um, what they call semi-dwarfing wheat. So wheat that grows shorter so that the, the really heavy seed heads don't uh, bend the stalk over and snap the wheat. Um, so it was all about um, getting the most yield from wheat and the most yield from marginal growing land. So the, the, the advent of nitrogen fertilizer, artificial nitrogen fertilizer, allowed us to grow food on land that probably shouldn't be used uh, as arable land. So not shouldn't, have, shouldn't be used for crops because it's not very good, but 
this artificial nitrogen allows you to grow a crop there anyway um, because you're not sort of reliant on on the soil as much um, but it's a it's a losing game mm. because a couple of things that happen you, you turn off the subterranean ecosystem so you essentially lose carbon and lose life in the soil when you use nitrogen um, on these impoverished soils it's kind of the equivalent mm. of putting women on the pill isn't it <laughs> yeah well yeah yeah it, it is, seems yeah. like everything's still happening and you're still having a cycle but actually you don't have any hormones happening and it's all no. been suppressed yeah, and what we know is that, that the plants themselves are um, producing less of the things that, that do us good. So there's more carbohydrate in the plant, um, in the finished plant that we go to eat, and, uh, and in the case of wheat, um, and, and less of the other things, so micronutrients, or it could even be something as, as sort of macronutrient as protein. So we know that wheat is, through the breeding of wheat, we've bred wheat to get shorter and more yield, so more kilograms per acre or tonnes per acre, um, but to, but it, the downside is lower protein. And, and a, a second downside is that a smaller plant actually has less leaf area, so it, it's, it's actually trapping less of the sunlight in the air and putting less into the soil, so it's feeding the soil even less. So this combination of artificial nitrogen and, and, and um, concentrating on, on high-yielding um, uh, crops that can survive in that, that, that high nitrogen environment has kind of ignored human nutrition. And so what we have done, and I think most of it's been inadvertent, inadvertent is, is what we have done is stripped the nutrient density from our food. And from my reading, my research for, for the book, um, we probably have successfully now grown the least nutrient dense food in human history, yep. which is quite an achievement, mm. um, really. <laughs> Um, Somebody but, don't you, give us a medal, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and look, I, you know, Fritz Haber, um, the guy who invented the, the nitrogen, he wasn't, I don't think he was a nice guy. He invented poison gas. He actually invented um, Zyklon B, which, is, which was used in the gas chambers of uh, Nazi Germany. Um, and, uh, and Fritz Haber was actually, he was a, a Jew himself. And so he died in exile, but about a million of his compatriots died because of, because of the poison gas he invented. He invented poison gases as well as, um, as artificial nitrogen. So I don't think he was a particularly um, nice character, even though he won the Nobel Prize. Um, and, um, but Norman Borlaug, I think his, his motives were noble, but he seemed to ignore a lot of people who were actually um, growing soil while growing food. So people who were actually feeding soil and improving it in the long term, as opposed to just growing more food today and ruining soil for tomorrow, um, he seemed to ignore that sort of technology, which I, I don't think he was, an, you know, it's inherently evil or bad. I think he just he, he just had a focus that didn't encompass um, soil health in the long term. Yeah, and I think I think most people we have to believe, assume, are doing things because they genuinely believe they're being helpful to something, um, and they you know they're exercising their brilliant minds and sometimes it's a real shame that the brilliance that they have is misplaced or um, yeah. or short viewed but um, yeah. yeah one of the first questions I got asked for um, someone rang me about to, to ask about the book and, and they said um, uh, about the soil book was oh this is going to be divisive isn't it? I was really shocked I was like well, I wouldn't think so because it's just I'm not trying to blame anyone like you know the, yeah there's a couple of you know people in in his, historical terms that probably don't come out you know glowing but but really you know farmers aren't trying to ruin land to grow your food 
farmers are just they're actually trying to look after the land but but they don't necessarily have all the information and they don't they might have they might be the victims of historical mistakes that have been passed down from generation to generation. But what's beautiful is we now know how to feed soil. We now know how to nourish soil. Um, and we, we have the technology to measure that. And we have all these historical reference points for, for cultures who've done really well at looking after soil and feeding lots of people. Um, and we just have to um, uh, be able to, to, to put that in place um, and still allow farmers to make a, a, live, a living and, and that. That is where the problem can come is because we now focus just on price and yield, not on nutrient density and soil. Yeah, it's kind of like the GDP, isn't it? We've only got a very narrow set of success metrics and we need more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you measure um, you know, soil health and nutrient density? And, and the, you know, the, the difficulty comes you know, with a farmer being paid on kilos, not on nutrient density. So if they can grow more, um, in weight, even if it has less of the calcium and potassium and, you know, phytochemicals and antioxidants and whatever that, that might be doing you good, um, they get paid more just to produce more kilos. So why would they want to produce something with uh, more nutrient density when they, there is no advantage to them, only disadvantage because there might be some inherent uh, uh, costs involved. In fact, usually growing slightly less um, uh, you know, growing more nutrient-dense food means you, you end up with a slightly lower yield, less carbohydrate, but more of the other things that are doing us good. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of people who've travelled a lot or perhaps come from different parts of the world where the land has been historically or recently historically still in better nick, I know for myself, um, being half French, when I'm in the French countryside, I can eat uh, three meals a day and just not even think about food in between those times uh, and just feel like everything tastes so delicious and the tomatoes are more intense and the carrots are more rich in flavour. Everything is just, it just feels like it's better in every way, shape and form. Uh, than eating here. Uh, and here I often feel like even though I've made a super nutritious looking uh, well-balanced plate of food, I often just don't feel like I've had enough. Uh, and I think that that speaks volumes really. Yeah, and I, I think that goes down to how we're designed. Mm. We, we are designed to be around nutrient-dense food and to know when we haven't got it. And um, one of the things that I found particularly compelling um, researching the book was, you know, I know that the soil in our garden, the more we have looked after it, the better um, the food tastes each year. And even though we thought we were doing quite well in the first couple of years, you know, things are more delicious now than they were a few years wow, ago. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting and it's beautiful to see. But I thought, well, is there anything to back this up? And it, 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 there is. There's actually research to back this up. Now, most of the nutrient density studies that you'll read about the benefit of organic food or whatever, are generally done in a really low-tech way. So they go, oh, has it got more vitamin C or has it got, you know, has it got more iron? So they're, they're important, but they're not the most important things in food. There's, it's the complexity of food. And the beautiful thing that I discovered that, that, that I, I kind of knew, and I think most people know, is that you and I and everybody listening to this is designed to be able to tell the nutrient density of food. Now, a farmer can't measure it very easily and it's very complex to measure nutrient density. But one of the best 
things that we have, uh, best tools that we have to hand is, is the thing that pokes out the front of your face. So the ability to smell um, allows us to, to pick nutrient density in food. Now, how does that work? When we eat, the deliciousness, most of the flavour we get from food is actually the smell. So when you eat something, if you have a carrot that has more spice, more complexity, more nuance, more interest, it probably is more nutrient dense. And um, uh, we used to think that, that humans couldn't smell very much. We could smell like 10,000 different smells. We now know we can smell up to a trillion different smells. We know that, that the human body is really, you know, a human can track a scent across grass in the same way a dog can. We, we can smell things that are in such tiny, tiny, tiny quantities, but only if we pay attention when we eat food. So we know that, that the best thing you can do, you know, the, most, the easiest, most accessible way to measure nutrient density is to eat something and compare it. You know, does that piece of, does that broccoli taste better than another broccoli? Does this um, you know, cabbage taste different than another cabbage? Is that potato you know, different to another potato? And, and there are variations with you know, where it's grown and how it's grown and who grows it. Um, and, but we do know that soil has an impact on, on nutrient density and the best way to tell nutrient density is, uh, you know, that's accessible to everybody is, is to just taste it and, and pay, atten pay attention when you taste it. But I think when you talk about in France, what, what's happening there is you aren't even necessarily paying attention you know, to all of the things that are going on, but your body because that beautiful thing that happens in your body between your, your gut and your brain, um, your gut is telling your brain, don't worry, you know, you've got everything you need to get through um, today from the food that you have already eaten. Whereas if you're eating stuff that's a bit hollow, nutritionally hollow, your body is saying, hang on, there must be something else to eat. Is there something else to eat? I need something else. I need something else. And that could be because it hasn't got enough polyphenols. Or it could be, you know, some kind of glucobrassicin or something, some kind of so micronutrient that it's never measured and it's never on the nutritional panel of your cornflakes yeah. um, and it doesn't exist in, it doesn't exist in, in in terms of you know nutritional data mm. but it's important for you as an individual to get in your diet yeah absolutely well those biological needs don't change but unfortunately agriculture has which you know therein lies part of the problem um yes so is there a financial case for convincing more farmers to improve their soil? Like, obviously, there needs to be a real impetus for people to change what they've been doing, especially on broadacre farms where people have been doing things the same way for a couple of generations now, sometimes more. Uh, as a farmer, I'm sure you've had um, some lengthy conversations about um, some of the options uh, and ways that we might convince more farmers to uh, improve their soil and therefore um, improve the nutritional quality of the food, the land, carbon sequestration. I mean, the benefits of improving soil are endless. Um, talk me through some of the conversations and ideas roaming around farming circles at the moment. Yeah, the, so the, the best, what, what's really um, heartening, well, I've just framed this in, in the sense of, Australia, Australian agricultural land, the growing land, the bit that grows all your food, has lost half of its, um, uh, we've lost half of its topsoil in the last 200 years. So for 60,000 years, probably more, Aboriginal people were feeding themselves from this landscape and not ruining soil. In 200 years, we've lost half the topsoil. So that's the magic bit, the tiny thin veneer of earth that does all of the world's growing. So um, I think we're at a point 
sadly in a way that we've lost half of our topsoil and the, and the half-life of what's left is measured in you know decades within 40 50 years we're going to lose half of what's left um, but that what that means is that farmers are at a point now where they're saying hang on my my land doesn't do what it's supposed to do it doesn't do what it used to do and it doesn't want to do what it did in my dad's time or my grandma's time or or even in my lifetime um, uh, so this, that's kind of sad but what that does mean is that people are now with more willing and to make a change and getting more carbon in your soil, which is which is um, uh, essentially more life in your soil, um, actually has huge advantages it, because it means you can grow more um, per per acre. You you can store more water um, per acre. Um, so water water is a really interesting one. If you can increase your soil carbon by you know a couple of percent, you can store a lot more water in the soil itself because all of the, the things that live in soil and all the things that have lived and then died in soil, and it could be, you know, um, the poo that my mate Graham's uh, dung beetles were drawing down, or it could be other sorts of carbon, you know, things that once lived that got into the soil, um, leaf litter that gets dragged down by worms, whatever, um, dead microbes, all of that helps to store um, moisture in the soil. So you increase your carbon by a couple of percent and you can you can store an extra 16 litres per square metre of, of soil that, that's 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 not in a dam you don't have to you know you don't have to irrigate that's just water that sits in the soil not waterlogging your soil but just stored within the structure of beautiful um uh, soil that that is then there for dry times so that's helpful to farmers um, the more carbon you have the more life you have uh, the more resilient things are when the dry times come or when the when it when it rains more um, good structured soil with more carbon actually uh, sheds water better after after floods you know it's um uh you know everything about it is is to the benefit of the farmer um but it does take if you especially if you're on industrial chemicals it can take some weaning off those chemicals before you, your soil finds the balance again um it's probably like if you you know i don't know if you if you eaten fruit loops for breakfast every morning and you suddenly stop all your sugar intake and you try to um you know, you get going into a sort of whole foods diet, your body's going to go through a bit of a shock. And as a, as farmers, you know, they still need to make a living for the, the shock. And the shock isn't a week or two, like it might be with sugar. It's it's more like a year or two while the, while the soil realigns itself. But there are, there's great, um, you can get paid to store um, carbon in your soil as, as farmers now through the government and through other private um, carbon trading schemes. That's pretty exciting. That's pretty exciting. And, and you know, I... I, I do worry that, you know, farmers are then being, you know, we're the ones who are being asked to store carbon in soil so someone else can burn um, Avgas or, yeah. or, um, or diesel or something, um, be subsidised. I still, as a farmer, get subsidised to burn diesel. Um, so, you know, it, it does seem, a, you know, a, it, I would hope that farmers would get into it because of the benefits to their land, that they, the more they can look after their soil and the carbon in their soil and the life in this, their soil, um, uh, then the better they'll do. Now there are people, um, you know, the really good farmers who walk around with um, little machine gadgets that they can test that um, the nutrient density of the grasses that their animals graze on, or the or the crops that they're growing in, um, you know, the grains that they're growing to, to sell. And there, are, there, so there, are, there are ways that some farmers are making a premium by looking after soil and being able to, um, I guess, you know, use their land more efficiently to make the money they need to stay stay in business and to and and feed the world because it, it there's a lot of people who talk about you know farming who a lot of commentary about growing food and how it can damage the land and it can but um it doesn't have to it can heal heal the land um 
but uh, you've got to, farmers need to make money to be able to do it. So they're, they're, they'll look after the soil if we, if we give them the motivation and, and, and to give them the capacity to, to earn a living. Um, we could turn where we live, it was all forest. We could turn it all back into forest, but we wouldn't be able to feed any people. And currently we feed 5,000, we do about 5,000 meals a year through our farm. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so if we want to grow food for, a certain, for the population, we have to work out, okay, farming is not perfect. It can ruin land. It can benefit land. Um, let's encourage the people who are doing the best thing by the soil, by the land that, that gives us life um, and make sure that they can stay in business to be able to do it next year and the year after and, you know, in a thousand years to come. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I really do hope everyone reads your book, Matthew. It's awesome. Uh, and I love that we found a way to talk about a lot of big picture stuff rather than giving away everything in the book. It was, uh, I was definitely trying to kind of uh, make sure that uh, we leave a whole bunch of goodness for people to discover, which they surely will. I know the Lotox community is always looking for ways to connect to how we can make a bigger difference from our tiny little corner of the world or our farms, uh, however people are living. So I just yeah. want to thank you so much for your time. Good luck with it and uh, and the, all the interviews that you're probably just about to do. Uh, we're um, really excited to see this book out in the world. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. I thought you were going to delve into nutritional dark matter. And um, and so, yeah, that was one of the theories that you, you um, people can explore for themselves but such great research being done from everything from the soil um to 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 mind health you know um and the connections between the two it's just i think it's a great time to be to be alive and growing food yeah it sure is thank you thanks alex well there you have it thank you so much for tuning in today i hope you enjoyed today's interview and I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's Stuart S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life uh, and of course, LotoxLife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a Lotox Life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.